I can claim no special expertise about the uh, spread of Thomism in Asia. I do have some experiences in mainland China, which I might speak about later, but I'm going to just start by making some brief, some broader remarks. And this is about 40 minutes long, so just make an act of resignation during Lynch that it's going to be a little more developed. Asia historically denotes many regions and cultures with astonishingly diverse characteristics. The term itself, you may know, originated with the ancient Greeks in the 5th century BC, and they used it to denote the Persian Empire. Iran, Iraq, and Israel are still regarded by cartographers as places located on the Asian continent. More characteristically, though, we might speak of countries and civilizations as diverse as Korea, Japan, China, the Philippines, Vietnam, and India, to say nothing of Indonesia, Bangladesh, and others. The challenges of evangelization and pastoral work are immensely diverse in these distinct regions, to be sure, and the challenge of employing the thought of Aquinas in this effort would be very different in, say, India than in China, just to allude to the most obvious ancient civilizations of the continent. In what follows, I'd like to, what I'd like to do is try to identify a key challenge of bringing the thought of St. Thomas Aquinas to some of the traditionally non-Christian regions of Asia, which can also be seen as an opportunity. Then I'd like to illustrate the opportunity by referring to three core ideas or areas where St. Thomas might be most helpful to all of us in thinking about Christianity as a universal religion in the 21st century. So first then, I want to talk about the challenge, which I'm going to characterize as developing an expanded universalism. Aquinas is famously called the Common Doctor, a title that seems to have been attributed to him from early after his career at the University of Paris. The name has invited a series of reflections about Thomism over the centuries. The thought of Aquinas has a particularly universal scope and intensity of insight into the depths of the human condition. It's filled with erudition from many sources. It has a kind of encyclopedic aspect to it. It aids the church to know the common human condition and to understand the truths about creatures in light of the first truth who is God and creator. It embraces the reflection of all things in light of what's ultimate. Also, Aquinas has been associated with perennial philosophy by Leo XIII in the 19th century in a more historical form of interpretation of the title. Aquinas's acquisition of the previous insights of Aristotle, St. Paul, Augustine, Dionysius, Avicenna, and Maimonides are drawn into a deeper and higher synthesis that preserves the common patrimony of the human race, but also sees truths organically in their connection to the mystery of God, the human person made in God's image, and the incarnation. Today, this prosaic and in some ways classical description of Aquinas' thought as universal in scope is subject, more recently, to dramatic reevaluation in the head of contrasting directions. Many in the 20th century argued that the church's missionary life in modern secularizing Europe is hindered or weakened by an over-reliance on primarily scholastic methods of thought and upon Aquinas as an artificial remedy to contemporary intellectual problems that he himself does not treat. I'm referring to the skepticism about Thomism that happened in the wake of the Second Vatican Council, not among everyone, but among some. In other words, the deepest reluctance towards Thomism in our own era stems from those within the Western Christian tradition concerned with its authentic universality. Is it truly common? Is it truly universal? Although this phenomenon occurs primarily within ecclesial institutions, it's an echo of a larger challenge or crisis in the West defining what constitutes universal human reason in the modern era. A crisis of intellectual consensus has emerged in European and American universities in the post-modern period, really you could say as far back as the post-enlightenment period, following the rise of positivism and scientism. The only thing we can depend on are empirical truths. After that, it's possibly subjective. To many today, all metaphysical and ethical systems are thought to be hypothetical constructions of reason that can never be verified in any conclusive way. What results too often in our contemporary Western universities 
is a culture of subjective preferences with regard to the truth and the moral life, a marketplace of ideas in which the key aim is to foster tolerance of the irreducibly di diverse beliefs and practices of others. Believe what you want, it's your right to do so. But if you get sick, go to the doctor because he knows about modern science and that applies to all of us. The empirical world has an objectivity, everything else is a kind of subjective construction. This first problem of, I'm talking about the West of course, but you'll see. To this first problem of relativism or the crisis of confidence in reason, we can add a second which is the acute awareness of a history of Western colonialism exerted by the 17th to 19th century industrial European powers in, in nations like China, India, and elsewhere, often through the medium of the British Commonwealth, which introduced many Western cultural practices into Asian cultures. This is not necessarily entirely negative. Key examples could include the global industrial market economies of modern Asia, the abolition of monarchies and the institution of democratic polity at the national scale, that's more ambivalent, admittedly, the modern university system, and the widespread practice of Christianity. Of course, needless to say, various Asian cultures have themselves adopted and developed these practices from within, and in doing so have given them their own particular expression and stamp of genius. We could speak of the genius or vitality of the Asian contemporary market economies or the vitality of their democracies and so forth. Today, however, it remains the case that a, two, a twofold complex legacy results from this period of European influence. In European and American cultures themselves, the effect of, is one of profound anti-colonial animus. Western ideas are subject to distrust and identity groups once subject to colonialism are promoted or studied as sources of special insight. In France, for example, you study Algerian literature, precisely giving it a privileged place because of the Algerian colonialism in, you know, in the French colonialism in Algeria. Taken in moderation, this sentiment is laudable. Taken in moderation, this sentiment is laudable. But when combined with what we noted above, as a, a symptom of internal distrust in the patrimony of the West, what results is a process of deep self-resentment in which the claim that, for example, Aquinas could be helpful in Asia might seem needlessly colonialist. Needless to say, this mentality has affected a generation of missionaries from a past epoch. I don't say all missionaries, but some kinds of missionaries and its results can be seen in the form of doctrinal and theological relativism that sometimes emerge among Western missionaries in Africa or Asia who want to, in a certain way, disrupt the transmission of the patrimony of Aquinas precisely because it's seen as too normative a European form of thought. However, the other side of this challenge is that which affects Asian Christians worried about the arbitrary imposition of Western European influences that are not suitable to their own culture and its particular form or expression of Catholic Christianity. Within the context of Asian Christian culture itself, Aquinas may be seen as problematically linked to his particular philosophical context as a medieval European. How can the patrimony of the common doctor be assimilated and expressed in a particularly Asiatic way in diverse cultures of the East? To ask this question is to ask, how we might rightly return to the foundational universalism in Aquinas' thought. Not Europeanism, not anti-Europeanism, but in fact just human, and not Asian or European, but just human universalism. A universalism that speaks to and can be spoken by Asian Christians in their own way, relative to their own cultures in the expression of Christianity in their own era. How can Aquinas be a common doctor for all in Asia? If such a task is possible, then it represents a strategic opportunity of the highest order. Can Asian Christians seek to avoid, in their own culture, a repetition of the crisis of reason that currently paralyzes so many Western institutions? Can Asian Christians instead, instead seek to identify and develop an authentic, expanded intellectual universality one that is not hindered by the skepticism and doubt uh, that, and that you might say the intellectual despair that is so often vividly present in Western universities. Can Aquinas be a resource in this respect? In what follows, I'd like to identify three domains where I think Aquinas' understanding of the world is true, 
and where his principles, which are unchanging, can be taught within various Asian contexts today in such a way as to invite new forms of articulation. These, in turn, can contribute to a true Christian universalism or a universal vision of reality that is applicable to all and that can help build a common intellectual consensus about the nature of reality in the service of the church and her evangelical life. So first I'd like to talk, this is the first issue or area, I'd like to talk about metaphysics and the articulation of the possibility of divine transcendence. If you happen to be visiting Rome or live here and you've ever gone in the Pantheon, you see when you enter that it is obviously one of the most noble of the pre-Christian temples from the Roman era. And one notices immediately the sharp contrast with typically diverse Christian, with the typically, um, with the typical Christian basilica. The rounded ceiling of the Pantheon suggests an intimacy or a proximity to the divine, as if the human observer exists within a kind of natural continuity of metaphysical extension with the deity or the Pantheon of deities. We and the divine live together in one cosmos one unified society. Robert Sokolowski has noted that one of the consequential imports of ancient Hebraic revelation is the progressive understanding within Greco-Roman culture, especially here in Rome, of course, of the absolute transcendence of God the Creator with regards to his creatures. Because God is he who is, who spoke to him of himself as the one who possesses being in plenitude at Mount Sinai, who gives being to all other things freely, who possesses in himself the perfection of existence. Therefore, God can only be one. There is no other than the Lord who is God for the Bible. Because God is he who is, and he alone gives being to all things, consequently, God is not of the world. He certainly is not the world. He is utterly utterly transcendent of all things, and in a sense unknown to us as the hidden source and ground of our being, unless he should freely reveal himself. That's not to say that the God of the Bible is far from the world. As the author of its very existence, he's closer to us than we are to ourselves, to cite Augustine from the Confessions. Various cultures tend towards various metaphysical and philosophical stances, but they all have predominant stances of this kind, or perhaps the influences of various metaphysical stances. For example, certain forms of Hindu thought in the Advanta tradition envisage God as the monistic principle at the heart of all reality, so that all human persons and nature itself in its essence are ultimately in their depths identical with the unchanging reality of God. Modern materialism, meanwhile, prohibits any acknowledgement of a transcendent reality that is immaterial, which gives being to all things, simply because everything that is real and that provides causal explanation must be found in the empirical features of reality alone. If it's not material, it's not real. Today, many of the historic cultures of Asia are experiencing a commercial and economic renovation of the highest order and have become or are becoming centers of technological innovation and market leadership. They are often among the most affluent cultures in the world, though not in every case. The concerns of a culture often mark its metaphysical sympathies or lack thereof in key ways. A core challenge, then, of contemporary missionaries and Catholic intellectuals is to find the right idioms to make the the reality and transcendence of God intellectually intelligible in Asian cultures that are not formally monotheistic. How do we speak of God as the hidden author of all that exists, as he who is not the world but utterly close to the world, as the creator of its very being, as the provident governor behind all things, who is the source of the truth, goodness, and beauty in creation, that we can come to appreciate as the expression of his wisdom. How also can we articulate the fact that the natures of realities around us that are common to them in various groupings like human nature, animal natures, plant natures, non-living natures, express a kind of hierarchy of being of distinct kinds that ultimately has its origin and root in the divine wisdom, in God who gives existence to the various natural entities of which the world is composed. And I'm alluding here to the fact also of speaking about philosophically with Aquinas 
the supreme dignity of the human person in the visible order, that non-living things provide, in a way, a support system for living things, and that living things provide a support system for animals that are reasonable and free and spiritual human persons. Here it seems to me that Aquinas' metaphysics of essence and existence and his thinking about the transcendentals, unity, truth, goodness, beauty, are of capital importance for helping provide a grammar of the universal structure of being. Aquinas' arguments for the existence of God are typically grounded in this antecedent study of being and its notes or properties, so that if one has a good grasp of the metaphysical structure of reality, denoted by the transcendentals and the distinction of essence and existence present in creatures, it is not difficult to begin to see the rationality of belief in the existence of God, or perhaps more importantly, to turn it around in a more subjective frame of thinking. One begins to see in our experiences of being, truth, goodness, and beauty in the world an opening to the possibility of transcendence, that the human mind and heart are never satisfied merely with the finite material realities and goods of this world, but that our minds are ultimately made to discover God, the author of all, all things, and our hearts are meant to aspire to contact with he who is transcendent. Explorations of this facet of, Thomist, of the Thomistic heritage will look different in India with its complex religious and metaphysical traditions than in Indonesia, which is a more typically Muslim country where your interlocutors are obviously monotheistic but influenced by the Quran and other traditions therefrom, or in China, where Western philosophical thought has had a more normative influence, although it is sometimes allied today with Neo-Confucianism or Japan or Taiwan, which have been influenced by modern corporate culture and which are subject to temptations of thoroughgoing materialism. But there is a common truth that one can aspire to in dialogue with the intellectual and spiritual traditions of all these various cultures, one that acknowledges both the transcendence of the God of the Bible and the human spiritual aspiration to the truth and to the good that are emblematic of a being that is made in the image of God. A second topic pertains to Aquinas' virtue ethics. As each one knows, modern Western society is deeply affected by an ambient individualism. The dignity of the human person made in the image of God is at the center of Western philosophical ethics historically. But this notion of the unique dignity and the rights of the human person has undergone transformation in our post-Enlightenment era. What is emphasized today typically is individual freedom, the rights of autonomy, and this is often allied with the culture of free consumption. You can go on Amazon and freely and autonomously purchase with your human right of consumership anything you want to push the button to buy. Under modern capitalist and technological conditions, the Western cultures we experience are increasingly fragmented societies of individuals bonded together less and less by ties of family life and more by a shared set of conditions for participation in the global market. We are all citizens of the common consumption market. Tradition, traditional Asian societies can be very different from this, not least because of, the, uh, of inherited notions of familial obligation and the idea of education, work, and sometimes even marriage as a means of advancing the good of one's collective clan or family. There's more, you might say, um, residual culture of solidarity. Asian cultures may more readily promote the idea of belonging to a larger pat family, patrimonial culture, and national identity. For decades now, there's been a revival of Thomistic virtue ethics stemming from thinkers like Elizabeth Anscombe, Serve Pinkers, and Alistair McIntyre. Some constructive work has also been done to compare Aquinas' notions of virtue with those found in various classical Chinese Confucian sources where clear parallelisms exist. I think we'll hear more about this later. Here I would simply like to note in passing a few features of Aquinas' virtue ethics in order to suggest why his understanding of human action and ethical life is pertinent to Christian evangelization in Asia. You might say Thomistic virtue ethics for Asia. First, Aquinas' notion of ethics as the cultivation of habitual virtue is both social in structure and strongly insistent on individual dignity and responsibility. Consider the example of the virtue of justice, by which we habitually choose to render to each one what is his due with reason. That's a brief definition of justice. 
To be just to others and acquire that virtue depends is an activity that depends typically on a wider context of social relationships of family, clan, city, state, and universal humanity. Justice judges what is due, the prudent person who has justice judges what is due to each one in relational contexts. Insofar as some have more objective need than others, or more claim on our dedication, such as our parents. You have certain obligations to your parents you don't have to other people. Or where there's more social responsibility, such as the, the justice we owe our governors, for example, or the state, which is different than what we owe our friends. But the same virtue is also able to acknowledge the basic and irreducible dignity of each human being who should never be instrumentalized. And justice requires individual responsibility of each one, which is an individualism of the best kind. There is a cultivation of deep and legitimate and profound human autonomy at the heart of Aquinas' understanding of the moral life. Second, Aquinas, so what I'm saying, the first point is he balances the social dimension of ethics with the individual dimension. And that's extremely precious because you obviously can get extremes both ways. Hyper-individualization, but also hyper-social conformity. And the, the Christian tradition stresses both the, the significance of the individual called by God into a vocational life of responsibility and love, and also the, the connectedness to a, a large web of social responsibilities and obligations. Second, Aquinas' virtue ethics underscores the profound potential harmony of custom and reason. Each of us may be taught how to behave, each of us, yeah, typically is taught how to behave virtuously or viciously, first and foremost by the surrounding examples of our parents, culture, peers, and educators. Often the parents are a little better at virtue and the peers are a little better at, at uh, vice, but it doesn't always turn out that way. C civic life matters fundamentally for the inculcation of virtue for Aquinas and carries within it historically developing templates of virtue. What I mean is that cultures have historical memories and expressions of what constitutes virtue and vice. To study a culture's particular laws and customs is to learn how it orchestrates virtue and denominates vice. But this being said, Aquinas under also underscores that virtue flows from reason, and so all civic customs must be subject to rational scrutiny. There's room for change and the need to change. Some civic customs are unjust and need to be brought into the pure light of reason. Reason and custom, then, are not at antipodes, but they are not reducible to one another either. So I think that this touches upon the pertinence of Aquinas in cultures where you have a very uh, still strong notion of learning virtue through the imitation of the, the, the customs and norms of the larger clan or family or society or the civic functions of various personages, but you also want to make room for legitimate individualism and rational critique. Aquinas has a balance. Third, Aquinas' view of virtue seeks to coordinate the pursuit of both imminent and transcendent ends within one pattern of unified life. That's to say, the Thomistic tradition does not play off the goods of society against the goods of religion or vice versa. To be religious, you have to give up all the goods of society. To be a member of society, you have to give up the goods of religion. In seeking to be virtuous and just toward the common good of society, we are invited to aim toward a higher horizon of a just relationship to God. But having a just relationship with God in turn requires of us a just relationship to our neighbor, including a responsibility for various social goods around us. I mention this because uh, Christians in parts of the Asian world sometimes confront claims or suspicions of unloyalty to the state or the culture they inhabit. This is obviously the case with regards to certain uh, uh, tensions with Hindu nationalism, where to be a, a Catholic is to be a bad member of the, of the commonwealth, of the, of the nation state of India. And of course, we see lots of dramatic events like this in, on mainland China, where there can be the perception that to be a, a Catholic is not to be aligned with the, um, the respect of the goods of the state. To serve God is to, in this line of thinking, to serve God is to betray the national tradition. To be faithful to the national tradition, one must turn away from the service of God. Aquinas argues rightly, however, in a nuanced way, that the Christian may serve the goods of society with cultivated virtue in accord with the natural law, while also ordering his life toward God most fundamentally and most ultimately 
in and through every activity, no matter how supposedly mundane. In this respect, Thomism has the potential to import balance and measure into conversations that too easily become acrimonious or oppositional. I'm not saying that Aquinas excludes the possibility of suffering for the faith or martyrdom, but I am saying that he has a very deep understanding of what it can mean to be faithful to the just responsibilities of the citizen who is practicing life in the, in the context of the state and its laws while still aiming at one's life toward God without any disequilibrium or disharmony. A third, now I'm going to pass to my third and final theme. The third and final theme I want to mention is that of Aquinas' Christology. Today, in parts of Asia, we see the danger of an Eastern restatement of the classical objections to Christology from modern Enlightenment figures such as Gotthold Lessing and Adolf von Harnack. Lessing, the 18th century Enlightenment author of the essay On the Proof of the Spirit and of Power, he wrote this essay in 1777, argued that an individual fact of history could never be proven as certain nor become the foundation for a universal system of philosophy. An individual fact of history can never be proven as certain nor become the foundation for a universal system of philosophy. He posited then, he's talking about Christ, he posited that a great and ugly ditch that cannot be crossed by mere reason stands between the Jesus of history and the later claims of the New Testament and the church regarding Christ, which have a universal, for, for, uh, a universal expression. The historical Jesus, then, who was a mere fact of history for the modern rationalist, cannot be a foundation, cannot give foundation to a truly universal philosophy. Similarly, in a play he wrote called Nathan the Wise, Lessing depicts in parable the traditions of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam as three sons of a king, all claiming to possess the true ring of inheritance, while in fact none can determine if they have the true ring. And there is even a rumor of a fourth ring, ring that was lost, to which these three compare only by imperfect similitude. The king is God. The three sons are the, are the claims of revelation. The message is clear. Belief in a contingent historical revelation, be it Islam or Christianity, is not warranted by modern reason, even if various traditions vie for the claim of authentic revelation. Instead, all traditions are equally valid or invalid, indemonstrable in their absolutes, arbitrary in their claims. In the early 20th century, Adolf von Harnack, a liberal Protestant church historian in Germany, added to this notion of Lessing's ditch the critique of Christological dogma as a problematic form of Hellenization, by which he meant, among other things, that the Catholic Church's teachings that Christ is true God and true man, one in essence with God the Father as God the Son, one in essence with us as human, are in fact linked inextricably to the importation of Greek philosophical categories into the biblical tradition in a way that is alien and unreasonable, projected back onto Christ. In other words, we need to de-Hellenize Christianity and extract from, uh, uh, we need to extract an ethical system of reflection from Christianity out of the morass of outdated Catholic dogma. Harnack sees the real Jesus of history as a mere ethical sage, teaching the spiritual awakening to the universal brotherhood of all human beings with God as our common father. What is the essence of Christianity for Harnack? He wrote a book by that title, The Essence of Christianity, The Universal Fatherhood of God and the Brotherhood of All Men. Jesus is reduced to an ethical sage and, you might say, religious genius. Why mention these Western figures? We see in some quarters of Asian churches today the emergence of analogous views. By analogous, I mean not the same, but somewhat, somewhat similar. There is the systematic distrust of classical categories of Christology as arbitrary Western inventions that do not have appropriate standing in the context of Asian churches. New theologies of religious pluralism might seek to depict the Old Testament of India as the Bhagavad Gita or the Upanishads, rather than the prophetic revelation given to Israel, insofar as these Indian sacred texts could anticipate the revelation of Christ. In a more extreme form, this philosophy might conceive of Christ himself as, the only, uh, as only one way to God among others, 
one vehicle or avatar of the divinity alongside others. A kind of thoroughgoing Christological relativism and pluralism. As I'm sure you know, the document Dominus Jesus was written with regards to these concerns and had in part it was responding to the, the interesting theories of a Belgian theologian named Jacques Dupuis who taught at the Gregorianum for years and who had a, a kind of a more profound uh, Christological pluralism that characterized his, his thought along these lines. And of course his thought's not indicative of just what people in Belgium might believe. He was a missionary in India for decades. At the same time, in other contexts in Asia, religion itself stands under scrutiny as a potential obstacle to social cohesion and is seen as primarily an outdated custom and potentially dangerous superstition. These views are all analogous in various ways to those of Lessing and Harnack. Can we build a universal human civilization on a contingent fact of history? If the answer is no, Christianity is unreasonable and in a certain way then not helpful to universal civic polity. In this complex new context, Aquinas' own study of the universal importance of the life of Christ is of real help and tells us that the singular human being, uh, sorry, and serves as a form of genuine counter-enlightenment. You might say a higher enlightenment, Thomistic enlightenment. It's true, Aquinas tells us, that the singular human being is individuated by matter and therefore lives in time in a given historical sphere. In this respect, he is not a source of universal truth for all due to the humble facticity of his life. In another respect, however, the human flesh of each human of each individual is something that pertains universally to all. I couldn't tell you, you couldn't tell me that your or my historical flesh is a universal truth for humanity. But we can say that it's universally true for humanity that we all have historical flesh. Each of us has a particular historical life in the body, in a particular time and place in history, and in and through particular cultures. And that is universally true. Consequently, therefore, even philosophically speaking, Lessing is wrong. We can teach universally by the way we live in our flesh and in the particularity of our historical lives to see how Socrates dies in his historical individual flesh is to teach us something about our relationship with the truth. But if that's true philosophically, it can also be true of the martyrs. We recount how they died in their particular physical sufferings, however gruesome they are, to illustrate universal truths about how we should live and die. That the eternal word made flesh should exist as man, living among us in a particular historical place and time then, is something that is of universal import, even more so, and deeply intelligible. God himself has taken on our universal human condition. He has lived in history and been subject to a physical life, bodily death, and bodily resurrection. But in this respect, his incarnation changes all of history for each one, universally. Genuine knowledge of this mystery is provided by divine revelation and supernatural faith, since the mere facticity of Jesus' historical life cannot be understood fully without the aid of grace. But this is precisely because of this man's his identity. It is God who has become man. And we need the grace of God in order to recognize him in Christ, the word, the son. This universalism of supernatural faith is not demonstrated by natural reason, whether European or Indian, but it is because it is superior in mode. It is a universalism given to us by God in grace. When Aquinas asks in the first question of the Tertia Pars of the Summa Theologiae why God became human, he gives, one answer that he, that he gives one answer that God did so so that we might know God personally in the flesh as one of us. Only Christ is God, but therefore God truly reveals himself to us all in universal terms. So similarly, when Aquinas discusses the Passion, he states that only Christ atones for human sin because only Christ is both God and man and has the dignity fitting, fittingly requisite for the reconciliation of, of humanity with God. It is the God-man who can save us. However, it follows from this that there is a universal atonement that has taken place in Christ that affects all. God loves all human beings and atones for our sins. Similarly, Aquinas notes that, when, that Christ alone is the firstborn from the dead, the primogenitor of resurrection, whose bodily glorification anticipates the end times and the cosmic recreation of the universe. But by that same measure, this event of the resurrection 
is a model, an exemplary cause of our own future resurrection, and it has a universal amplitude of scope. In other words, the resurrection also is a universal. I'm alluding to incarnation, atonement, resurrection as three individual events of Christ that have universal significance for all human beings. How can we depict these profound ideas of Aquinas' today in the context of Asian churches to those in non-Christian cultures and in dialogue with the great non-Christian religious traditions, but also in the face of secular distrust of religion as something irrational? The rational and mystical Christology of Aquinas is a great aid to us in this venture. The answers we give in Asia can also in turn help us greatly to respond to the skepticism of the modern Enlightenment that still so deeply affects European civilizations. Let's bring missionaries from Asia and send them to the lands of Lessing and von Harnack. We began this lecture by asking, in a sense, what Aquinas might do for Asia. But as you've probably also inferred, there's the question of what Asians might do for Thomism and for the universal church at large. By seeking to articulate a horizon of transcendence towards God, a theory of Thomistic ethics as virtue ethics, and a classical Christology, all within the context of Asian civilizations, inheritors of Aquinas' intellectual patrimony in Asia can illustrate anew the power and depth of the principles of the doctor communis through engagement with older and newer cultures. In doing so, they will inevitably expand the range of human reason and theological insight in an organic way consistent with the church's tradition that is ever ancient, ever new, always living in new contexts. They do so, those new Asian Thomists, in the vital service of the common good of humanity and the mission of the church for the spread of the gospel and the salvation of souls. Thank you very much. So why don't we, if you have questions, and there's no bad questions, if you have questions, I'll just call on you, and, then we'll, and maybe I'll take about 10 minutes of questions, and then we'll take about a 10-minute break before the next session. Or challenges, or other thoughts, editorializing. Thank you, Father. Regarding the similarities noted between um, these um, European theological movements upon our lesson on that, and similar objections arising within Asia itself, do you think that's two separate sources for it, or is it in Asia people being taught by these um, Western... Uh, I think there's some of both. I mean, I do think it's important to recognize that if you take a if you take the kind of Christological pluralism model I was, I was speaking of before, you actually see the idea that Christ is only one medium of salvation and not the universal savior as an idea that emerges in Switzerland in the 16th century in the radical wing of the Reformation. I'm not talking about the, the, the so-called magisterial reformers of Calvin and Luther. I'm talking about people associated with the extreme the radical Anabaptists. Um, some of them actually claiming inheritance of Meister Eckhart and, uh, and Towler and uh, German Dominican mystics to claim the soul just naturally has a kind of direct contact with God. That's not necessarily fair to Towler and Eckhart. But the point is, some of these ideas actually go back into the deepest recesses of kind of uh, Western European thought. Uh, in the modern period, in the early modern period. And then you find expressions of it in the 20th century, 19th century in Schleiermacher, 20th century, in ways of reading Rahner. I think Rahner is a committed Trinitarian and is a kind of committed incarnationalist, believing that Christ is the uniquely incarnate word of God. But the way in which he expresses it and the way he thinks that grace is present in other religious traditions suggests possibilities that other religious texts and figures could be avatars of the divinity. These are all European ideas. The thing is, though, someone like Jacques Dupuy, who was a missionary in um, India, is a disciple of Rahner, who takes his thought one step further. I see the project of Dupuy as primarily being um, coming right out of the European matrix, even though the other side of that is it finds... Um, and there's other versions of this. Peter Fahn in the United States doing stuff like this um, 
in, in, in other, other Eastern contexts. But I think that there's, because of the heritage of colonialism and the fear of an all too simple uh, assimilation to Western intellectual traditions, there's paradoxically the desire to cling to this self-critical model of the West precisely to give opening to the idea that the patrimony of Eastern texts, Eastern religious figures, could be a kind of antecedent to Christ, or maybe even equal to Christ. Now, when you get to that, I mean, obviously, on one level, so a couple of words here. The Catholic tradition isn't European. That's a huge error. I mean, the early, the early Christians are, first of all, if you started, with, I started on talking about Israel and Iran, I mean, the early patrimony of the Revelation is actually technically Asian um, in the Persian, you know, and Israelite and Hebraic context. But then it goes into northern Africa. Well, okay, they're involved. Uh, the incarnate word, the articulation of that was given, was done by Egyptian theologians and people in Cappadocia, today Turkey. Augustine was African. So you have, uh, you know, you don't want to have s- simple geographical ideas. But um, in terms of the, the idioms of expression, it seems to me that Justin Martyr, who was in Rome, said rightly in the second century that there are um, seeds of the word in other cultures, and we're right to look for those. So the, the, the aspiration to find in the Upanishads, for example, some possible way to anticipate the revelation of Christ is fine. The, the problem comes when these things are placed at the same level as the prophetic revelation given in its particularities to Israel and, and in Christ. Father Thomas. Um, it's not a question, it's a critique. Okay. Um, I, I would disagree strongly with this uh, affirmation um, saying that um, Israel is Asia. If you have um, Jewish maps of the world, uh, symbolic maps, you have an image of that in the Louvre Paris. So they represent the world in, uh, as a flower, three petals, um, according to the three sons of Noah. One is Europe, one is Africa, and one is Asia. And um, the polygon is just in the middle. It's neither Asia, nor Europe, nor Africa. But it's real the common point. And the center of the world, and the center of Israel is Jerusalem. The center of Jerusalem is the temple. The center of the temple is the holy of the holy. Mm-hmm. Here we are in the place where Aden was created. And where Christ saved the world, the entire world. So if you are God, you want to take a place which is really universal, you go there. Because it's really the center of the world. Yeah, it's an interesting thought. I mean, I, you know, it's like Dante's image of uh, Jerusalem in, in the um, Divine Comedy, is that it's the center of the world, the center of the cosmos. I, I'm not adverse to the idea that there's a particular geographical meaning to why God chose Abraham and the, the ancient people of Israel. Um, I think there's always going to be controversies about why God chose the contingent particular conditions of... I mean, Aquinas does have one question where he says, why did he choose Abraham? He said, it's not because of anything in Abraham. It's because he wanted to show that from Abraham he could do his own work. That doesn't, that doesn't exclude talking about why he did it in a particular region. Um, I, I do think that actually the insignificance of Israel is as important as its significance in trying to est- establish why the, the predilection of divine grace chooses a people that's relatively insignificant and builds them up. And I think that that's a message for us in terms of the universal pedagogy of God. But those are really interesting theological questions. And there's a huge medieval... Um, patrimony about thinking about the geographical location of Jerusalem, which is not shouldn't be thought of as just you know outdated Middle Ages. I, is anyone from Asia going to? Okay, I see an Indonesian hand up there. Thank you, Father. I'm from Indonesia. And before I start, I just want to give some uh, idea about my country because not many Europeans know Indonesia. Because a couple of years ago, I have Paris in Rome and they asked about which is bigger, Indonesia or Thailand. And I was very offended because Indonesia is much bigger than Thailand. <laughs> okay, uh, about Indonesia, I believe that Indonesia uh, probably is the most representative of Asia. Why? First, 
we have seven religions in Indonesia. So we have Muslim, we have Christian, we have Catholic, so we distinguish between Christian and Catholic. We have Buddhism, we have Hinduism, we have Confucianism and Taoism, and we have also a lot of traditional religions. And we also have around 270 million inhabitants, with 80, probably almost 90% of them are Muslims. And also about the other religions, for example, like Confucianism in Indonesia is different than China. The Confucianism in Indonesia is more like, well, we can tell there are two streams of Confucianism. The Confucianism who comes before the Dutch or during the Dutch colonialism, it's more original than the new Confucianism that, uh, that came from China around uh, 18th or 17th century. So there are different streams of Confucianism. And also about the Hinduism in Indonesia, there is a Hinduism in Bali, and well, the Hinduism in Bali is not Hinduism like in India. It's Hinduism, more uh, inheritance from the kingdom of Mojopahit, actually from the part of Java, and it's different than Hinduism in North of Sumatra. It's the real Hinduism that's similar to India. So this is the situation in Indonesia. And also the Buddhism in Indonesia, for example, in the south of Java, is different than the, in India. And also in Buddhism in Java, also different than the Buddhism that came from China. So this is the situation in our country. And also in uh, our lifestyle, I have a friend, a priest in Java, in Indonesia, that his parents has three children, uh, has five children, three daughters become a sister, become a nuns, and two become priests, but the both parents still Muslim, and they live together. I mean, they can help, uh, they can live well as a family. And this is very interesting. And also, some of my friends also still celebrate together with the Muslim Lebaran of Idul Adha because that's part of their general, uh, their parents or probably their brother or sister still Muslim. This is the situation in Indonesia. That's why for us, when we talk about uh, Christianity, when we said that you have to be a Christian, it's a little bit difficult because we have a lot of people also have a good personality and well, probably also, we can say same, because two days ago, also I saw from the news in Indonesia, there is a Ustad that already, Ustad is the like Muslim priest, that already buried for 20 years, and when they dig up the, uh, the cemetery, the corpse still not decayed. Well, so, Father, let me respond to the, that, I mean, helpful analysis, which I, it, it is true. Let me just say, let me respond, because I just I want to get yeah. a couple more questions. So, so that's, yeah. that's the, the situation that in our country, so in order to talk about Aquinas in Asia, for us, at least from my experience, in order to get into the thinking of Aquinas, it's a little bit difficult, because we already have this uh, tradition and culture that well, all the same, we live together as a family. And when we have to face with a very distinct idea, it is very difficult for us to understand. Well, it's from my experience. Yeah. Thank you very yeah. much. So, I mean, my argument is that in cultures like that, where you have just an incredible um, wealth, you might say, of diversity, you have also an enormous opportunity. Because if if the Catholic Church learns to articulate its own beliefs about the human person in ways that can be intelligible to all these diverse people, then we expand the uh, expression of universalism, of understanding. I do think it's important to distinguish that Aquinas can be communicated not merely uh, Christologically and theologically, but also philosophically. So for example, with metaphysics and virtue ethics, you have the possibility to talk to people about what their ordinary experiences is prescinding from particular um, dogmatic claims of the church. But that truth, that experience of priests and religious teaching the truth in one domain gives them confidence that the church may be speaking the truth in another domain. So it's a more of, it's a subtler form of evangelization, but I think it's important. And I would just say that, um, um, you know, the only, the only reason I mentioned, I mean, it's the largest Muslim population in the world of any country. 
And so the point is, with, with Muslims, you have another set of metaphysical presuppositions that you have a lot more in common with. That was sort of, so one of my points is that when you're talking about Aquinas' views on God and Muslim views on God, you have more to work with. You know, so it's different than, say, if you're looking at, like, dialogue with the Upanishads is different, or if you're talking about to Sikhs, you have more in common. So these are just very different, you know, kind of groups to engage with. Yeah, I'll take this as be the last question. My question is a follow-up to your question because I think it's really interesting. I think the, the fundamental structure of all the thought of Aquinas is distinguished to unite. Yeah. And it seems like it's the opposite in the Asian culture. We, we unite to distinguish. I mean, the community has the precedence. And the idea of having a distinguishing is true when you actually, at least that's my mission experience, it's so difficult to get this. In what country? I'm sorry? Yeah, well, my mission experience was in Vietnam, for instance. Right. It's very difficult for me. To begin by distinguishing as a, the first stop, the first step meant unity before it. It's a reverse stop. Yeah, I, I was talking once to a missionary in, in uh, southern India who told me that when he would speak about Jesus as the unique incarnate truth of God, they would say, well, let's find this incarnation of God. We have many incarnations of God, so we'll just you know, add him to the, to the pantheon. And so, you know, it was like, well, they're patting the priest on the head. That's nice, you have an incarnation from God. You know, we don't have to change. We can just, we can, you, can, you, can, you can belong too. And that's the, so like the distinction is like seen as, uh, the, the idea that there's a truth that stands out is seen as, uh, it, it, it's already um, woven into the larger cultural intellectual fixations. Um, but, uh, we have so many important counterexamples where the, you might say the truth of Christianity becomes vivid to people and um, suddenly it is, I mean, the answer in the end is that people discover Christ personally you know, and the Eucharist does a lot of work for us that you know, that we don't, but um, okay, I'll finish with a French story uh, as I'm sure many, I'm sure some of the people who are in the French know when, when Bernadette went to see the priest to tell him that she'd seen the Virgin Mary, the Immaculate Conception, the priest famously said to her, the parish priest, I don't believe you. And what she said back to him was, she didn't tell me you'd believe me. She just told me to tell you. <laughs> and it's really, it's a very, it's very important in, in evangelical and missionary work in every culture. I experienced this a lot in America. I've certainly said many things to people that were very nicely said that were rejected. And you know, the thing is that we're not really sent in order to assure that people will believe us. We're sent to tell them. But I do think that um, the, the, in, the internal power of Aquinas' understanding of the world and his insight into the common human condition has the sufficiency to eventually uh, create uh, disciples and people who will take the thing in their own direction, in their own culture. Okay, thank you very much.